This is incredible. What? It's the last thing the creature saw. Police inspector. The image has been retained in the fluid. Exactly. The creature's visual memory is located not in its brain, but in the eye itself. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Hey, Robert, if you were murdered, would you mind if I scooped your eyeball out, cut it in half, dipped it in some chemicals, and then looked at that to see if I could find the image of your murderer on your eye? Only if you had the professionals like uh, the late great Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing doing the investigating, uh, as they as they do in this clip that we just heard from the 1972 horror film Horror Express. I have to confess, I've never seen this movie. So tell me and tell the audience what is what's it about? <laughs> well, this yeah, this is a fun, wild little film that uh, it is shockingly uh, a public domain property mm-hmm. uh, at at the moment. You can find it on on YouTube and, and pretty much any anywhere that you're uh, going to grab your your horror cinema. It's uh, it has a, sh- a shockingly star studded cast. You got Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and not in our audio clip. Telly Savalas as a as a Cossack captain. Wow! W- without any attempt at a at a Russian accent or anything, just straight up Telly Savalas. So it's just Kojak pretending like he's a Cossack captain on this train. Yeah, exactly. And there's a uh, oh god goodness, there are all these uh, additional character actors as well. There is a uh, there's a Rasputin s character oh, yeah? uh, that's walking around. It all takes place on a Trans Siberian Express from China to Moscow. And it concerns this uh, this alien possessed, reanimated, prehistoric hominid that just starts running amok, draining the memories from its victims, leaving them with milky white eyes. And there's this fabulous scene, which we we just heard the audio from, where the scientists use a microscope on the creature's eye fluid to reveal its final sights, as well as a, a kind of hilarious glimpse at the prehistoric world. But so that may sound totally ridiculous in the scheme of this film. And and it did when I first saw it. I first saw this, I think, in college, and I had no idea that it had any connection to the rational world. I was like, what kind of dope <laughs> were these guys on when they wrote this? Because yeah. this is the, the most crazy pseudoscientific idea I've ever heard. And it turns out that it is actually uh, an over 200-year-old theory that still floats around occasionally, though we mainly just see it in our film nowadays. But man, it connected to forensic science for almost a century and to the criminal mind in terms of what they needed to do to get away with their murderous crimes. Yeah, and as, of course, as we'll get into the topic, we'll explore to what extent it was, it was tied to forensic science. It has a, it has an interesting history there. Essentially, it is, it is still a, a pseudoscience. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, pseudoscience often enters our world where magic fails us, seeming to make the impossible possible via the invocation of actual scientific and technological marvels. And and so today what we're discussing is is unmistakably necromantic. You know, it's it's communicating with the dead, but it's wrapped up in these 19th century technological advancements and uh it's it's, it's extremely fascinating I, I i can't believe it's taking me this long to finally get to 
the the actual science behind this ridiculous movie. Yeah, it's it's fun, but it's also utterly bizarre. What we're talking about here is optography. There's a name for this scientific practice. What we're going to do is we're going to give you kind of a precursor to optography and then discuss the experiments surrounding it and then how that led to a lot of confusion in forensic science for a long time. Yeah. All right. So in order to, to understand how this false notion uh, could have gained any traction, we have to first look at the scientific advancements that preceded it and made it seem possible, e- even to serious researchers at the at the time, as, as we'll get into. Uh, but as always, you know, a little bit of knowledge is always a dangerous thing. So in 1837, French artist and physicist uh, Louis uh, Daguerre invented the daguerreotype. This is the first commercially successful photographic process. And he used an iodine-sensitized silverized plate and mercury vapor to capture uh, the image. And it produced very detailed images. And while it took minutes of exposure time, this was still swifter than previous photographic methods. Uh, they couldn't be replicated, uh, and each uh, daguerreotype image was a mirror image. Uh, but still, it had just an incredible cultural impact at the time. Right, yeah. I mean, I, we're still close enough, I think, in the like relative scheme of history that some of us have seen daguerreotypes before. I have this book that's utterly macabre and somewhat related to this that's just daguerreotypes of of dead bodies from the oh, 19th yeah. century because that was a a thing where people would photograph the dead before they were buried and uh it's fascinating and there's like a cultural history within it it's not just me being a weird sicko looking at corpses mm-hmm. but the daguerreotypes have a specific uh, texture to them that I th- I don't think you see in photographs today yeah and it's it's also just it's hard for us to put ourselves I mean, given just how 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 photographs fill our world and how accustomed we are to the technology it's it's hard for us to imagine what it was like to suddenly have this technology more readily available yeah. um but but when you look at some of the commentary from the time you can really begin to 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 to, to zero in on it um uh, for instance uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes called the daguerreotype quote the mirror with a memory hmm. Uh, which, which I think is rather fitting. And, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, wrote about the invention in 1840. And I want to read, uh, uh, some quotes from him because I, I think he, he summed up the, just the wonder and awe of this invention rather nicely. And it's Halloween, so let's yeah. see what Poe has to say. If we examine a work of ordinary art by means of a powerful microscope, all traces of resemblance to nature will disappear. But the closest scrutiny of the photogenic drawing discloses only a more absolute truth, a more perfect identity of aspect with the thing represented. The variations of shade, the gradations of both linear and aerial perspective are those of truth itself and the supremeness of its perfection. The results of the invention cannot even remotely be seen, but all experience in matters of philosophical discovery teaches us that in such a discovery it is the unforeseen upon which we must calculate most largely. It is a theorem almost demonstrated that the consequences of any new scientific invention will at the present day exceed by very much the wildest expectations of the most imaginative. So I hear that Poe quote, and it sounds to me like the advent of photography was really changing how people thought about the world, right? Because up until then, let's be honest, like our awareness of the world is essentially from the self because we're looking out from ourselves 
to the world, right? Yeah. But with this photograph, you can start perceiving the world through the eyes of the other. Yeah. And that sounds uncanny, like a complete change in thought. Yeah, you don't have to depend on uh, the fallibility of memory. You don't have to de- depend on uh, on an artistic representation that is created by somebody. It's virtually instant compared to to artistic techniques and uh, and has just incredible detail. So it makes sense that people would be just applying photography to everything and and uh, you know to your point about taking pictures of the dead right. to commemorate them. Uh, it, it reminds me, for instance, you remember when everybody was was getting these um, these picture frames that would throw up multiple digital images? Yes. I got one for my grandmother a couple of years ago. Yeah? Yeah, because all of our photos were digital and she didn't have a computer. So we got her one of those and then my sister, brother, and I, we just all like uploaded like a hundred photos into the thing and sent it to her for Christmas. Yeah, I mean, they still have them, obviously, but... I feel like for a while there, everybody had them. It was, yeah. it was the thing. And even at the time, I remember thinking, this is, this is going to be a, a detail in a historic reenactment in the future. Like, this mm-hmm. is going to, this is a technology that is going to quickly fade because it's a bit weird. It's just not working <laughs> in, the, in the way that uh, a digital image in a more traditional digital medium works or as a, or, or the way that a physical uh, photograph works in a frame. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is a strange thing. I think you're right. That's going to be one of those things that like period pieces 50 years from now will they'll they'll throw those weird digital frames in all right so you had uh, the daguerreotype it was new technology it was game changing it was exciting and uh, and you had a lot of people already appropriating all of this excitement to the pseudo to uh, pseudoscientific and mystical purposes and we're not going to get into all of those purposes today but obviously this was the era of spirit photography um, you know, images of ectoplasm and ghosts and fairies. Uh, so anything we're talking about today that gets a little uh, uh, mystical in nature is really nothing compared to some of the other uses uh, that were out there. Right. But this led to how we study the eyeball, right? Because there was this cultural idea that the function of a camera was the same as the biological function of an eye, whether that be in a human being or a rabbit or a rat. That's right. And, uh, you know, at the same time, we were also making huge strides in studying the eye itself. Right. Uh, in, in 1850, uh, we saw the invention, and, and some argue this was just an independent reinvention, of the ophthalmoscope uh, by German uh, physiologist and physicist Hermann von Helmholtz. And the invention revolutionized ophthalmology in that it allowed the doctors to see inside the fundus of the eye. Okay. So this is like the thing when I go to the optometrist every year and they look at my eye with what feels to me like is like a microscope or something. But it's obviously a lot more complicated than what uh, Helmholtz was working with. So you take these two technological advancements. Yeah. And... In retrospect, it seems inevitable that we would get to this realm of ophthalmology because we're learning more about the eye. We have this fabulous new technology. And time and time again, we can't help but think about the human experience in the human body in terms of the technology we use. Right. When we've talked about memory on the show, we often talk about how we we fall into this trap of thinking about the eyes as video cameras and memory as like the tape database. When it's really nothing like that, you know, aside from the most simplistic uh, 
uses of that metaphor. Yeah, it's actually interesting. When you look at that period of time during the Industrial Revolution after this invention, right, there is a lot of focus in sort of fantastic fiction on the ideas of being able to do the things that you do in industry better Mm -hmm. with the biology of the human body, whether that's like moving faster or being stronger or having better eyesight, like all of those things, like how can it uh, increase the production, right? Yeah. And then you start seeing investigations like this in science where it's like, oh, well, maybe if we peek inside of here, we'll we'll get some idea how to make it so everybody's got superhuman vision. And yet it's still so hard to shake mystical interpretations of vision. Uh, for instance, uh, just consider that the long outdated emission theory of vision, this is the idea that you see with eye beams, the idea that there's some sort of force that comes out of my eye and touches uh, some, the, you know, the, the, the thing I'm trying to see yeah. and relates uh, the information back to my eyes somehow. Uh, this has long been abandoned. But according to, the, uh, to an American psychologist article published in 2002, as many as 50% of adults still bought the emission theory rather than the correct intromission theory. Really? Yeah. I've never even heard the emission theory outside of, like, comic books. Well, but and the comic books is a great example because it, it comes down to like what Cyclops, the X. Yeah, Cyclops is who I immediately think of. It, it gets into this idea that without like really thinking about it, and rem- and even in many cases, I think just reminding yourself, oh yeah, light is entering my eyes, and right. that's how I see. You end up thinking about reality and thinking about sight in terms of Cyclops's laser vision, right. where if something's coming out, blasting things. If someone's staring at you, they're like peering into you with some sort of a force. Yeah, yeah. This is interesting. It says more, I think, about our uncomfortability with looking at a living being's eyes mm-hmm. than it does about what we think about how we see things. You yeah. know what I mean? All right. So, so far we have the inherent mystical nature of sight or the experience of sight. We have these new technological advancements. Uh, uh, plus, you can throw in a little bit of experiential support as well. If you stare at something for a long time and then you gaze at a blank wall, what happens? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can still see an impression of that image. Um, and you may experience this, too, with computer screens and whatnot as and, well. And to the point of what we're going to discuss with optography, that effect is heightened if you go from being in a dark place to a bright place or, or vice versa. Yeah. And in 1854, English scientist uh, Reverend William Scoresby uh, w- uh, conducted this experiment where he would stare at an object and then look at the wall and then time the image to see how long it lasted. Uh, and uh, th- there was this, uh, it, the paper was on pictorial and photochromatic impressions of the retina and of the human eye. Uh, and there's this wonderful uh, quote. This is uh, from an 1854 write-up in the uh, uh, Anthenium. Upon removing the eyes from the object, the author explained the early appearance of the picture or image which had been thus impressed on the retina or, as he expressed it, photographed upon the retina. So we have the technology, observable perks of human sight, backed up in an experiment and a general human history of seeing the eyes as windows into the soul, uh, as well as observational, observational changes in the eyes of, say, a fish. Because how do you judge the freshness of a fish? Yeah. You look to its eyes, right? When they start changing and getting cloudy, you know they've been dead longer. Right, yeah. Okay, so let's take a break, and when we get back, we're going to take this step, and we're going to move forward into the rise of optography. All right, we're back. So optography 
seems to have begun in the mid-17th century, actually, or at least the rumors of something like it, when a Jesuit friar called Christopher Sheener observed a faint image that was disappearing from the bare retina of a dissected frog. So like you were saying just before the break, right, we look at fish's eyes to see if they're starting to decompose, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it seems like he was doing something similar with a frog, but then he was like, wait, I see a picture in this frog's eyes. This means something, right? Now, remember, what we were talking about earlier with photography, photography wasn't really invented until the 1840s. This is what gave rise, though, to the idea that the animal eye worked like a camera. So uh, Shiner's kind of hypothesis of that there was an image left over in the frog's eye seems to have connected with that, becomes somewhat of an urban legend. Then we get in 1863, there's an English photographer who takes a photograph of an ox's eye right after the ox dies. And he uses a microscope to search for any evidence of the images left inside this ox's retina. The photographer claims that he could see the fleeting image of stones arranged just like the slaughterhouse road that the ox was facing just before it received a blow to the head that killed it. Okay. So this helps spur this on even further. It becomes a little bit more of a so it's sort of just like a you know rumor like oh did you know like the last thing you see before you die is imprinted on your eyeball. Then it was really studied for the first time by Franz Christian Boll and in 1876 he discovered that there was a pigment hiding in the back of the eye that could bleach in light and then would recover in the dark and he called this visual purple. Now today we call it rhodopsin. I'll give you a little bit of a lesson on rhodopsin here. But but it's certainly worth noting in all this that 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 Bull was the real deal. Like this yeah. this wasn't just a photographer who is making some judgments based on uh, uh you know the photographs that he'd taken. This is a guy who who studied and made some real achievements. Absolutely. So we now know today that rhodopsin is a pigment that contains sensory proteins and that converts light into an electrical signal. This is a common pigment. It's in a lot of organisms from vertebrates to bacteria. In fact, I was seeing all kinds of academic papers yesterday doing this research on how there's there's some uh, potential animals like some octopi that may have rhodopsin in their skin hmm. that allows them to, quote, see through their skin in some ways. It's common, but it's also required for vision in dim light. And it's located in the tightly packed Discs that make up the outer segment of the retina's photoreceptive rod cells. Basically, the way it works is it sends an electrical signal along the optic nerve to the visual cortex in the brain. The eye's sensitivity is dependent on how much rhodopsin is present. And part of the visual process involves it being destroyed in this bleaching process that I mentioned when it's exposed to light. Now, here's a weird thing. Mutations in the rhodopsin gene can actually lead to night blindness. So this is where the eye fails to adapt to darkness. So rhodopsin is really important for us being to, in D&D terms, like low light vision, right? Yeah. Um, and it can be affected by environmental factors, especially vitamin A deficiency. So if your vitamin A is low, this can mess with your rhodopsin and how well you see at night. Now, I love, despite Bowles' scientific pedigree, uh, I love how his experiments sound so much like alchemy. Right. Uh, I ran across a, a bit from his writings as quoted in uh, Optograms and Criminology, Science, News Reporting, and Fanciful Novels by Douglas J. Lanska. 
Uh, and uh, here's what Bull said. I simultaneously decapitated a dozen dark adapted frogs and kept their heads dark in order to examine their eyes consecutively at stated intervals. Yeah, man, that is a common thing with optography, cutting animals' heads off and just keeping them around. <laughs> in the dark. Get ready yeah. for it because everybody does this and they even do it to a couple people. Yeah, and it's the same. It's it's It lines up so well with accounts you read about how to make a homunculus. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. So actually, before Bull, there's this report that in 1868, a doctor in the German town of Vosquez presented pictures that he made of the images from two murder victims' eyes. And a medical expert named August Gabriel Maxime Vernois was asked to examine this concept and test it empirically. So he's basically the outsider scientist, comes to this town. He takes a look. What does he do? Experiments on 16 dogs and cats, presumably cutting up their eyeballs and their heads. He finds no pictures. He finds th- this isn't true, This, but something's mm-hmm. wrong here, right? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things, though, particularly about Bowles' experiments, um, is that, that he was excited by the chemical process that seemed to be taking place there, uh, because it was, it was rather like the sil- silver nitrate in photographic plates. It was like this yeah. chemical process that was a part of this exciting technology. So again, we can't help but see uh, the comparisons between uh, the technology and uh, the human experience. Yeah, and I think that's the difference here, right? Is that Bull was actually like working with the, the with chemistry mm-hmm. and biology, whereas like wh- whatever went on in this town of Vosquez, like it was really just somebody taking pictures of murder victims' eyes and thinking they saw something yeah. there, right? But this all changes, and in Germany. Uh, Germany seems to be the center point for a lot of this. I wonder if there's something specific to German culture that revolves around the idea of being able to see uh, an image on a dead person's eyeball. Oh, I don't know. I mean, to, I mean, to a certain extent, I think just sort of necromantic uh, ideas about communicating with the dead are, are perhaps universal. Uh, now, on the chemistry side, though, of course, you can look to the the huge achievements in chemistry that were made uh, uh, in Germany, yeah. uh, you know, around this time and into the the early twentieth century. Well, German listeners, if you've got some insights into this, we'd love to hear from you. But here comes Wilhelm Friedrich Kuhn. Now, Kuhn was a professor of physiology at the University of Heidelberg, and he studied rhodopsin. He devised a process to fix the chemical in the eyeball and then develop an image from it. And these experiments grew out of his accidental observation of the shape of a gas flame from his laboratory on the retina of a frog. So... Kuhn performs this famous experiment. This is the one, like, anytime you look at optography mm-hmm. articles or, or anything, this always comes up. This is the most famous experiment. He takes an albino rabbit in 1877, and he fastens this rabbit's head so that it's forced to look at a barred window. Then he covers its head for several minutes, I think, with, like, a bag or something. Uh, and this lets the rhodopsin accumulate in the rabbit's eyeballs. Then takes the the bag or whatever off of the rabbit's head, lets the eyeball be exposed to light for three minutes, and then decapitates the rabbit. He removes the rabbit's eyeball, cuts the eyeball open, and takes the retina and lays it in a solution of alum. Then he would bathe the eyeball afterward in sulfuric acid, and this would cement these images the next day, the image would then become printed and it would show a clear pattern of this window that the rabbit was looking at with its bars right before it died. So Kuhn is actually the one who coins the term 
optography, and he calls these images optographs. So we're looking at the beginning of what is maybe going to be a science, but really doesn't end up panning out. And the reason why is Kuhn himself really felt like this wasn't, you know, something that uh was reliable enough that you could use it over and over again, right? So his experiments ultimately showed that only simple, high-contrast surroundings were able to produce interpretable optograms and that the retina, whatever it was, whether it was from a frog or a human being or rabbit, needs to be removed very quickly from the deceased. He determined for rabbits the limitation – you need to get it out of their head between 60 and 90 minutes of death. In oxen, it was useless after one hour. Yeah, and then one of the problems with it, with human eyes that I've seen pointed out is that human eyes are arguably uh, more like bird's eyes than mammalian eyes. This according to uh, author Simon Ings, author of The Natural History of Seeing, The Art and Science of Vision. Um, yeah, Kuhn's history with this technology is rather interesting uh, because on one side there is just sort of the grisly and very specific nature of of the research. Uh, for instance, when he was uh, trying to figure out a, a better way of fixing the images, which uh, uh, again is akin to a fixing bath in the chemical process of photo development, hmm. uh, he eventually realized that a retinal image would fade and vanish, you know, due to just metabolic processes in the eye, uh, even a short time after death. So in one experiment with uh, with a a dog uh, that had essentially been uh, put under and then put on artificial respir- respiration, and that dog he had previously hooked up its uh, carotid artery with an injection apparatus so as to quote drive a rapid stream of warm alum solution into the head and into the eye. Okay, so it sounds like here what he's looking to do then is is basically limit the after effect, right, by having the animal still living while he's injecting the chemical fluid for the processing. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That so poor dog. Well, yeah. I mean, hey, but those rabbits, those rabbits didn't have it easy. Those rabbits, yeah. No, I, I wouldn't want to be those rabbits either. But at least, I mean, I'm assuming the decapitation was quick, I hope. But well, he's in a hurry. I mean, this, he, he has to do yeah, it quickly. This dog is like... You know, thankfully put under, but it's mm-hmm. got all this stuff running directly into its eyeball. Ugh. Okay. But, but it does boil down just how difficult it would be to use this uh, in any way for especially for forensic purposes, because yeah. in order to pull it off, he realized you need a a, uh, a very simple, high contrast target to look at anyway. So, you know, like window beams, et cetera, these things that we've talked about. Yeah. Uh, you need a paralyzing agent or some other means of locking the eyes on the target. And then the eye would have to be rapidly removed and opened in darkness, the retina hardened and fixed. And even then, the method often failed because the pigment regenerated and obscured the image. Mm -hmm. Now, while others uh, out there in the world speculated on the potential forensic applications here, Kuhn initially dismissed these possibilities. He wanted no part of the, quote, uh, various popular accounts to which my name has been in the most unusual manner attached. Still, uh, when presented with the opportunity, he gave it a shot. Yeah, he couldn't pass it up. So he actually retrieved the eyeball from a human being named Erhard Gustav Reif. And this was a man who was sentenced to death for drowning his two children. This is 1880 we're talking about here. And this guy was killed by guillotine, so his head was decapitated. Kuhn creates an optogram in 10 minutes. He, like, grabs his head the minute it falls off, scoops the eyeball out, and just immediately begins his chemical process. 
Now, when the image came out, Kuhn and other people who saw it, they were all like, oh, wait, I see this. I see that. They, But then nobody could really agree what it was. And mm-hmm. ultimately, it was decided this is too ambiguous. It didn't so, really work. So there might have been an impression. But was it a useful impression in any way, shape or form? Was it an identifiable impression? Doesn't seem to be, especially in any way that could be used to, like, for instance, identify a murder victim's killer. Now, Kuhn later worked with American physician Dr. W.C. Ayers, who conducted a long series of experiments. We're talking a thousand plus experiments. And he concluded that optography would never have a place in forensics. Uh, this is a quote here from uh, that Douglas J. Lanska piece I cited earlier. And this is in uh, the source. It's, it's an anonymous 1881 source that he quotes. Uh, he, meaning uh, Ayers, believes it utterly idle to look for the picture of a man's face or of the surroundings on the retina of a person who has met with sudden death, even amid the most favorable circumstances. And, you know, it would it would remain this way. There's no evidence of a human optography experiment ever producing as 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 clear an image as we saw with those rabbit experiments. Yeah. And uh, and even then, uh, those rabbit experiments, again, it just looks very abstract. It's like three beams. If you're told that it's a window, then you can say, okay, I can see where that would be a window. Yeah, we actually have uh, the photo here mm-hmm. in our notes. If, if you want to look it up, I'm sure you could find it if you just Google optography. But, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it really, it's a very simple, basic, high contrast image. I, I doubt that you would be able to, even with a rabbit, uh, discern a person's face. Right. And that is the vast consensus from people who dealt with the science. Uh, it was just uh, refuted again and again, uh, all, all the way up into the 20th century. And yet the idea didn't quite die out. Yeah, it, it's it still hasn't panned out. And yet for some reason, it's like stuck in our cultural memory. Maybe it's because of the pop cultural implications but people just forged ahead and kept trying and trying and trying. And at the same time, you had various individuals in pop culture, writers or or celebrities that were either uh, playing with this idea or they're just outright talking about how photography had this link with the supernatural. For mm. instance, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of uh, Sherlock Holmes stories and uh, a self, uh, self-experimenter of poisons. As we know from our recent yeah. poisons episode, yeah. In 1923, he gave a talk on spiritualism in the Mormon Tabernacle in Salt Lake City, uh, and he made use of photography to make his point. Um, uh, and this was uh, uh, eight years after the attempted forensic use of uh, optography that we're discussing here. Uh he he showed off spirit photography uh, as proof of the afterlife, and it was well-received. I mean, he's talking about photography as this means of communicating with the dead. And uh, in the, the, the spiritualist uh, enthusiasm of the day, people were still buying into it. And this gets back into what we were talking about in that Poisons episode, how, like, most people associate those Sherlock Holmes stories and Arthur Conan Doyle with being, like, pretty firmly grounded in reality, right? Mm-hmm. But there's always this, like, lingering kind of whiff of the occult in them. Uh-huh. And that was something that I think both you and I were always attracted to by those stories, right? And it turns out it's because he, like, had one foot in the occult a little bit. Yeah, and, you know, at, at the same time, it's um, it is important to note that he wasn't being completely illogical in all of this. Right. You know, he was applying a logic to it. Like he he's saying, yeah, there's there's a, a there's an afterlife. There's there's a spirit world. There's more to us than what we see. And here's the evidence. Now, there's some some fallacies involved there, mm. but it it wasn't like a blind illogical um 
uh, exercise for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Well, I think we are all owed an episode of Benedict Cumberpatch's uh, Sherlock Holmes where he's uh, hunting down ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. Get into it. I believe there was some sort of a TV series uh, and I don't recall the name of it. I think it maybe it had something like The Great Detective in the, in the title, but it was it was a fictionalized account of of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's interest in the supernatural. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, I've never heard of that. Yeah, it was a British series. I don't I don't know that it went more than a single series. Okay, cool. Well, now that we've got the biggest fictional example out of the way, why don't we take a break and then when we get back, we're going to look at the forensic history of people trying to use optograms in actual criminal investigations. So, all right, we discussed that Kuhn showed optography wasn't feasible. Even he himself came to this conclusion. But the idea still took hold, and it still leapt into fiction. People continued to claim that they were using the technique. There was a hope that the technique would be allowed to determine a murder victim's assailant. And you see this across the century. You've got uh, Jules Verne wrote a story about it. They're, they've used it in Doctor Who a couple times, and there's an episode of that TV show Fringe that uh, they used optography in as well. It seems like a missed opportunity for the uh, the TV series Hannibal. Uh, oh, yeah. Because I can clearly imagine a scenario where the killer tries to, uh, to, to put his own image on the retina of a murder victim. And then know? he, like, makes a, a specific meal with that eyeball, like, uh, on the top of it, like a cherry. Oh, yeah. Well, I would hope the episode ends, yeah, with Hannibal eating the killer's eyes. Exactly. One would hope. Yeah. Well, that, maybe if they get a fourth season, we'll see that episode. <laughs> uh, by the way, if, if anyone out there wants to ca- check out the Kipling story, uh, its title is At the End of the Passage, and the Jules Verne story from 1902 is The Kip Brothers. Hmm. That's interesting. I wonder if he named it after Kipling. I don't know. I haven't read it, but uh, perhaps some of you have, and you can uh, you can give us your thoughts. So here's an example of where this was first starting to be used by actual police. They uh, in 1877 April, police photographed the eye of a murdered man. They were only partly aware of what optography involved. So they had clearly heard about Kuhn's experiments, Mm -hmm. but they they were just taking pictures of somebody's of a corpse's eyes. Uh, And in fact, the investigators on the Jack the Ripper case may have also considered the technique. There's a rumor. uh, It's never been confirmed, but that the technique of optography was carried out on Ripper victim Mary Jane Kelly in 1888. Yeah, apparently this comes from uh, a memoir by Scotland Yard inspector Walter Dew. And even in his account, he claimed, he basically says that they took the photos, but they had no real hope that anything would come of it. But, you know, like you said, they kind of heard that this was a thing. Yeah. So why not get in there and take some, get the best camera over here, take some shots of the eyes in case the boys in the back can do something with it. So they were just, they were desperate at that yeah. point because it was, I mean, they've never experienced anything like a serial killer up yeah. until that point. So, but but you see the same scenario time and time again, where uh, where the inspectors don't really have any uh, intimate knowledge of the science that's involved here. They just have this general idea that technology can make use of the image of an individual's eye to see what they saw before death, right. and therefore go ahead and take the photos just in case, just to be on the safe side. Well, the next example that I found of this came from a German newspaper article that reports an optography attempt in the 1925 trial of Fritz Angerstein. And this is for the murder of his wife and seven other people. So again, we've got like pretty, you know, uh, elaborate case of murder here. Mm -hmm. 
the coroner in this case claimed that he saw images of the killer holding a hatchet axe in the eyes of not one, but two of the victims. So Angerstein was convicted and executed, partly due to this optographic evidence. It wasn't even, and I'm saying evidence with quotes around it, like mm-hmm. they didn't take pictures, they didn't do the whole coon thing where they cut the eyeball up and they soaked it in fluid, none of that. This guy just went, yeah, I saw an axe in those people's eyes, and that was admitted as evidence. Yeah, uh, Lanska talks a little bit about this in his uh, his write-up. And yeah, essentially it was just a case of the police rolling up a suspect by telling him, look, we grabbed the image of you, uh, you know, wielding the murder weapon from the dead gardener's eyes. And, and there probably wasn't even a photo, but the police only needed the threat of it to force a confession out of a man who was willing to believe that such things were possible. So this totally renewed the interest and the supposed credibility in using it uh, for forensic investigation. Now, on the other side of the Atlantic, in 1914, a headline from the Washington Times reports that an image was taken from a murder victim's retina that might show who her killer was, and that this victim was 20-year-old Teresa Hollander in Illinois. Now, the police had hoped that the face of her murderer was imprinted like a photo negative on her retinas. But the technique never revealed anything in the case, and it was used to accuse Hollander's former boyfriend, Anthony Petrus, of the crime. However, he was tried twice for this crime, and he was never found guilty, so it was not successfully used there. And again, I, I, I just want to reiterate this. Like, we're talking about these examples, and we're saying, oh, this is so ridiculous. Can you believe it? It sounds silly and unbelievable to us today, but in the 19th century and obviously early 20th century here – People were fascinated by the developments between biology and photography and the fact that they just they could not get out of their heads that they thought, oh, the human eye and a camera are the same thing, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. So surely we can just do what we do with a camera to the human eye and figure out who these killers are. So that brings us to the 1927 murder case of police officer George William Gutteridge. And this is in the UK. The perpetrators who killed Officer Gutteridge, believed in optograms. And so they shot him through the eyes after killing him to destroy the evidence. Ah, so this is just the kind of the reverse of the whole take photos of the eyes just in case, shoot out the eyes just in case. Exactly. So this goes all the way up until 1975. We've got we're back in Heidelberg, Germany. This is where Kuhn did his research. And the Heidelberg Police Department and town are like, you know what? We might want to revisit this. <laughs> let's take one more crack at this. It's thing. been a century, but let's take a look. So they invite physiologist Evangelos Alexandridis to reevaluate Kuhn's experiments. So he comes up there. He performs similar rabbit experiments. He places them in front of paintings and images. He cuts their heads off or takes their eyeballs out, all of this stuff. This seems like it's the last serious optography research that has has been performed, or at least reported to be performed. But he, again, found nothing particularly valuable there. And that should be enough because I mean, the, the whole history of optography entailed experts refuting it time and time again. So, you know, someone would get it in their mind that, hey, we should we can look at the eyes of this murder victim, right, and see what happened. And then the experts would say, no, actually, you can't. There's <laughs> even even if we had the most pristine uh, environment and you had total control over it, like even before the individual's death, you know, which is totally unrealistic, even if, if conditions were perfect, 
it would probably be useless. Yeah, I'm trying to be sympathetic and imagine not a science fiction possibility, but something that seems within the realm of the empirical where clearly Rhodopsin does have the ability to retain an image for a certain amount of time. Yeah, there's no doubting that, that there is an image there that, 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 uh, that, that for instance, the, the crossed bars and lines, uh, that we have from the rabbit's eyes, those are the effects of the, of the eyeball looking, uh, at the window and, and taking in this con, this contrast. Yeah. So I, I, I'm just trying, like, potentially somebody's going to come along another 10 years, 20 years and say, well, I don't know, like, let's, let's try that thing where we pump, uh, fluids directly into the eyeball of a dog again or something. Or, or maybe they'll, they'll take a corpse and they'll try to, like, uh, re- reverse engineer the Rhodopsin process on it. Hmm. It, it seems like something that might work. It seems like they're onto something, right? But it's just not quite there. Well, the interesting thing about all this is that, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that book, A Natural History of Seeing the Art and Science of Vision by, uh, Simon Ings. Yeah. Well, I ran across uh, an interview with him, uh, for PRX Media. And, uh, and in it, um, he, he suspects that modern brain scanning technology could wind some of us up in some of us up in very similar territory years from now when we've learned more uh, about what the evidence actually is compared to all the things we're taking away from it right now. Okay. And he specifically suspects that this will be the case with the first time a suspect is placed in a brain scanner to see if they remember a crime. Okay. So I think that is probably that's probably the best way to try and put ourselves in the heads of people who are studying this and yeah. even advocating it and entertaining the idea of its usefulness, uh, you know, on up into basically modern uh, modern day. Yeah. Is that uh, you know we're we're likely doing some of the same missteps today with uh, with some of our brain scanning technology. You know, we we have this amazing ability to look inside the brain and see what's happening. And, you know, there's not a day goes by that there's not some cool study that's talking about what this may reveal about uh, cognition and uh, and memory. Mm. But are, are, are all of those connections legitimate? And uh, and where do we start uh, misapplying the technology to forensics? So it sounds here like rather than looking at the rhodopsin, rather than looking at the chemical itself interacting with light and turning it into electricity – that maybe the idea here is that if we can look at that electrical signal somehow, if we can get a hold of that somehow from the brain, then that might be a possible way to make optography come to life, no well, pun intended. I, I mean, I guess optography comes to life in the future if you have a sort of black mirror scenario where you have some sort of uh, computer brain interface. Yes, you right. Know, that then, as is often the case with, with, uh, with technology, it, it makes the magic possible. Hmm, Something okay. that was previously pure necromancy or, 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 you know, a scientific reality that could not really be inflated to equal the magic. Uh, suddenly it's possible because of some sort of, uh, you know, technological grain that's been implanted in the, in the, in the head. Well, listeners, what do you think? Do you think that there's some value to, uh, you know, continuing experiments like this on the eyeball, whether it's with human beings or other animals? Or do you think that maybe uh, we're on to something here talking about potential brain-computer interfaces? Will we ever be able to see what the last image was on a dead person's eye? 
write us on social media if you've got an answer. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Tumblr, and we're on Instagram. And hey, maybe even send us pictures of what your eyeballs are seeing. That's right. Uh, yeah, don't forget to check out the the uh, mothership that's stufftoblowyourmind.com. And you can email us all of your inquiries, all of your questions at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 